of our environment, like how you grow up, where you grow up, and that affects you a lot and how you think about your work. Geography is something that's always been important, and uh, I was born in Oklahoma, and I lived for the first eight years of my life in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is kind of this odd, iconic, kind of middle of the heartland, Bible Belt kind of place. It had these, like, flat, as a pancake and skies, gigantic skies. You always felt kind of overwhelmed by the environment there. When I was about nine years old, we moved to Washington State. And it was kind of the opposite, but still this very overwhelming environment, this like geography. And I you know, grew up having this relationship to where I live, not only through the environment, but also through kind of the popular culture ideas of it. And a lot of that came because I grew up as a very other, like I grew up in communes and away from mass communication and in a very, almost in a weirdly segregated way. And so I had these ideas built up about uh, what life was like and it's never really been like that. Uh, I went back to Oklahoma and I went to college there. Uh, my father still lived there. And I was in the middle of a semester of taking lots of, um, I was microbiology at the time, and I decided to go to this firehouse art center and take a ceramics class. And I just fell in love with ceramics, and I made wheel-thrown stuff, and I used to alter it and kind of carve it. And then, at some point, I decided I wanted to go to school for ceramics. So I looked around, and I ended up going to New York State College of Ceramics, which is in Alfred, New York. It's not too far from here. It was a little shocking from a West Coast, kind of mid-country young woman to go there. It was very cold. And when I got there, I continued to make wheel-thrown work. I would throw this work on the wheel, I would extra thick, I would alter it, I would put it back together, and then carve it quite a bit. It was a cone seven oxidized soda glazes. And, um, and to me at this time, this work was kind of all about the landscape. I was creating these landscapes on these vessels and these pots. Um, I used that work and I applied to graduate school and I decided to go to Louisiana State University. I really wanted to go to a place as different as possible and come back to this kind of, not that Oklahoma was the South, but Louisiana felt a little bit like returning home and it was this amazing place. And when I got there, I do what I always do. I kind of unpacked my bags, like this is what I know, this is what I've done and I'm going to continue to make work in this vein. It's like kind of, here we are. And as I was there throwing and altering and combining work and carving, I had to take other materials. And to me, this is one of the most important things that you can do, and uh, is that you go study something else. You know, if you're really into ceramics, go take a sculpture class, or go take a printmaking class, or a painting class. Because I was able to 
be kind of free in this way, in this other material, that I wasn't able to be in my own chosen material. Like I took ceramics a little too seriously and so I could go have fun. And this is the first representational piece I had made. I made this gigantic corn fabricated metal sculpture and then the corn itself is porcelain and it lights up. And that led me down to this um, journey of really being in love with Americana. So I was looking at Americana artists like Thomas Hart Fenton and making these large basket forms that were referencing different types. Like I would look at that, I love that movement, that kind of creepiness, that disturbingness of its environment. And, um, and I would try to have my own interest. So this is tobacco leaves in this basket, and these were quite large. And I, um, here's an artichoke basket. And at the same time, I started looking at um, some other art history. I was making all of these kind of oversized terrines. They were usually like about two feet big. Like this lid lifts off at the top, that artichoke is a handle, and then inside is a soup terrine. I was throwing these on the wheel. Each of those artichokes was individually thrown and then assembled, and then I would carve them and put them together. And it was getting to the point where I was making this pottery that was so unusable that it really was getting called into question. But I also wanted to make them, I don't know, I wanted to show something slightly more disturbing in them. So looking at these old Northern European paintings, and they talked about the cycle of life. They'd often have kind of like dying plants or flowers and insects to show this. So I decided to take an entomology class. And at the very end of my graduate career, for two years I made these pots and then at the end of it I decided um, I want to do this instead. So to learn about these insects that I was going to put on my work, I took this class and started making these little models or maquettes of the insects. And this was over the summer, and I had a great time making these. They were a lot of fun. I made some pieces based on those where it was tobacco and tobacco leaves or corn and corn pieces. Very sorry for the quality of these <laughs> images. They're scans from slides that are quite old. And I hated making these pieces. And I thought, okay, I had this plan where I was gonna make these functional baskets and pieces, and I was gonna make these insects. And and then I made them and I was not happy, but I loved making those maquettes. I took a history of popular culture class and we learned about this war of the worlds. And so I decided to make this, this kind of stupid piece that was a insect on a radio. Just as this kind of, this idea, this symbol of this war of the worlds where the aliens come down and take over. And this was like a non-functional and it finally broke me away. I think like a lot of people that come into ceramics, I held on to function in my ceramics because that gave it a use. And though even if the piece was bad, you could still use it or it still had this reference. It still had this, and it just took me forever to be like, sculpture has a use also. But as my kind of joke to myself, I made functional things out of ceramics that weren't so the radio was functional, and it didn't work in the same way that my other functional pots weren't working with this praying mantis. And that sent me off on this whole different direction. So uh, I started to make kind of everyday common designed objects, these objects that talked about a optimistic future. And I combined them with the insects. And in my head, I 
thought of the insects as the like reality or the disillusionment, whereas the designed object was the idealism that we were hoping for. Uh, I ran into a lot of problems. I started working just with porcelain. I got rid of the glaze parts, and because of the scale, these were all kind of in this scale, I started to make molds just so I could get these pieces to survive the firings and get through. And this is where I started to realize that um, I could cold join pieces together. Here's some orange uh, termites with uh, toothpicks. You know, so each of the toothpicks is probably about two and a half feet long. Uh, the mixer. You know, so just figuring this out, I wanted to get that, um, I wanted them to be almost like ghosts of these, like they're almost a memory or a history. So right out of graduate school, I came to the Play Studio, which is in Philadelphia. It's a really nice artist organization there. I got a fellowship. And while I was there, I met the man who became my husband. His name is Hide Sadohara, and he is a functional potter and also a figurative sculpture. So there's some images that shows he's down on the top and then his pots. And he teaches in SUNY Fredonia, which is why I live in Fredonia part of the year. Uh, when I came there in Philadelphia, I kind of did the same thing I'd always done. I like unpacked those bags and made work that was kind of similar to work I had made before where I continued on. And by this point, I was making uh, molds of almost all of this stuff. So I'd make the model, I'd make the mold, I'd cast it, I could alter it and add to it. Um, I could get, there's a little bit of technical, I could get these pieces to survive because I would fit them together cold. So these are a set of molds for an ant that I make, so the thorax, the abdomen, the head. Uh, and then these would be the parts of the ants. So I would fire to temperature all of these parts. And I think there's 28 parts to an ant. And then each piece would get uh, pinned and glued together. So there'd be like a little uh, hole in them. I could make a metal pin and then I could epoxy them in and I could put them into any position. And then I could make pieces like this. So this was the, if you were in my lecture today, I talked about this, uh, pyramid of ants on the tray, and that's the piece that floated off down the river twice, and then I got to come in and fix it and put it back together. So they're actually quite strong, even though they were incredibly fragile, because they all have metal pins inside, and fabric. Um, so I had a lot of fun making these insect pieces, and I like to think about the kind of position that I put them in. The, cockroach on the left, is it on your left? It's on your, yeah, this side. Um, that's a, actually moves. So instead of metal pins, I have leather in between. So when you crank that, the legs flail. And that was really just like the dying cockroaches that were all over the place. The uh, firefly on the other piece lights up. I don't have a picture of it lighting up, but the idea was, um, you know, the translucency of porcelain, but also that's how they attract mates. So my kind of in-joke was that it was trying to mate with the light bulb. My work is really not super intellectual. It's actually kind of silly in a lot of ways. And often, as I was talking with Missy before, sometimes it's just kind of an inside joke that I make to myself. Um, I got to a point where I could make these insects, and I could make them in almost any position, but there's something really passive about the insects. Like they don't really have an expression. You can't really interact with them. 
they're not active creatures or something to look at. And I wanted my work to change. I was kind of bored with making those. And I went back and I looked at these influences that I had had from earlier. And that was Meissen porcelain. It's uh, an old porcelain factory that started in the 1700s in Germany. Uh, was something I really had always loved, that work. So um, here's a couple of pieces. They had kind of a sense of humor. Uh, the gentleman has like a mouse. I don't know if you can see it on that slide, but there's like a mouse up on his hat and one coming out of his mouth. And I really loved this idea of the history of figurines as comments on popular culture. You know, it's the times before they had television or before radio that they would make these and use them almost as a way to comment on what was happening. Uh, the Young Dog is another piece that was made for the uh, Japanese palace in Dresden. That to me, they took this material, this porcelain material, they tried so hard to figure out how to make it. And then they finally figured out the recipe. And it was figured, it was like white gold is what they used to call it. And this sculptor in the 1700s made this like ratty street dog out of it. And to me, that was like everything I wanted to say, but like 350 years earlier, about like this material and this empathy and this struggle. So when I wanted to change my work and figure out a new way to work, the first thing I did was kind of make a copy of that dog. And so I made it and made molds of it and assembled it. And I've made a couple of different things with this. Like I made a double dog and then I made the dog where the parts remain separate. There's actually bone in between those, the dissected dog. And it just made me think about a whole different way of working. So then this would be uh, another piece, but a series of molds that I would make. I made a cat piece and I make the model. So if you saw the thing today, I was making the model of the lamb. Then I would cut that model up, make molds of all the different parts, cast them. So here's all the cast parts of the cat. It's like arms and legs and body. Put them all together in greenware, as opposed to pinning and gluing them together before, I would join them all together before they got fired and then make this. This was cat bite, and just it was, uh, you know, obviously what it is, it's a cat getting ready to fight. Um, you know, I wanted to think about animals, how we see them, but actually how they are also. Like I have cats, and every night my cats would fight, and I like this idea of showing them as kind of beautiful, but then also aggressive. Like I'd like to think of, you know, animals' true nature was to, you know, eat or fight or have sex or to do these things and I wanted to show them in figurine form. So <coughs> chipmunks and then they're so on a tray I think I talked before this was the piece that cracked on the tray on the base and I didn't know what to do I had to figure out a way to fix that so I covered it with resin and I was like oh I like that and I started covering everything with resin. Uh, I like the kind of I went to school at a time where all of my faculty were from kind of an abstract expressionist tradition. And it was all about physically how you leave your mark on the clay. And I think I was part of a generation that decided to rebel against that. And I wanted to come in and erase every mark of the artist on the clay. So I liked making these things that looked like they were made by nobody that there wasn't an independent, but then having positions or ideas or things that were in them to create 
a content that was a little bit unusual. And I still continue to work that way today. Like I don't want to leave that aggressive mark, but I want to have some kind of humor or surprise or beauty, like something that's going to draw you into the piece. Uh, here's Kohler. So after I was out in Philadelphia for a couple of years and working, I got a residency to go work at Kohler. It's, you go, they, it's a place that makes sinks and toilets and they have a program where they let artists come and work on the floor. So behind me was, um, I think those were the toilets, but if you look over to the other side, there were the urinal guys, and they would come in and cast those, and you work, and it was a really odd thing, because twice a day, they'd bring group, tour groups around, and you know, we'd be on display, like here she is, working on. Uh, so it was an interesting thing. I learned um, some about mold making, I learned quite a bit about my work and made a lot of pieces while I was there, none of which I have ever shown or done anything with because they were a learning experience but possibly not successful. Um, here's some of those pieces that came from there. So the um, weasel that's on the top, that base is actually made out of two toilet tank lids that I've put together so that can give you kind of a sense of the size and then the lamb you saw on the bottom. Um, you know, one of the things, they have a train kiln there. So train kilns are really cool. It's like a continually moving train track that goes through a tunnel kiln. And it takes 36 hours for your work to fire. So you put it on the car and it goes through this kiln. And then 36 hours later, you come pick it up. And if you don't pick it up, then it goes through again. And then you gotta wait another 36 hours, uh, which is great. But my work is so fragile that I would put it on the cart and then it would like, before it even got into the kiln, it would like rumble enough that it would just like fall over. And you're like, oh, great. So I'd have broken shards to take out. So the weasel was making something on its back and the lamb was making something that was cut so I could fire it half and half and then put it together. And then these are um, colors that you could get your uh, toilet or sink in if you chose to. Like a nice pink or a lovely lime green or a yellow. Because you use their clay in their materials. Um, I did take those molds and make some pieces out of porcelain. Um, one of the things that was really interesting was seeing, having all these parts around that I had cast, and so being able to think about adding. So I went off on a little tangent where I was adding extra parts because I was trying to figure out, I wanted to show some sense of movement. I wanted to make these animals a little bit more active or alive. So by having the double feet, um, Humor and surprise has always been an important part of my work. Like I want to, part of the, I guess, humor to me is that I have learned these skills and I've mastered these skills and I've worked at modeling and carving. And, but then sometimes it's just a ridiculous thing that I make. But I want it to be in the, carving the modeling. I want there to be an exquisiteness in there, but I don't want it to be a seriousness. You know, so the squirrel here fighting. Um, here's a squirrel sniffing panties. Um, this was still in this kind of idea of the fight or flight or sex or death. The mayfly, um, I started to use other materials, uh, some resins and different things. That's actually a little kid's pair of panties that I dipped in resin that he's holding. The um, mayfly, I wanted to, the wings and other parts of it are made out of other materials that go in. 
feel like I'm missing all the content. That's right. I'm like so burnout. <laughs> Sorry, I've been working all day. Uh, so there's a little bit, you can see on the rooster, I made a lot of different feet moving around. So this idea of action movements. I really had to teach myself a little bit about modeling and how to get these pieces. Um, the animal with the underwear, that was all based on that um, copper tone act, yeah. you know, which even as a child, I found so disturbing and kind of pedophile type of way of like, why is there an ad with a young child having her panties pull off or her swimsuit? Do you guys know that ad or is it just too old? And so I wanted to like, what's the cutest animal I can think of? And then it was the lamb and then making it. So is that again, child, like a child? Yeah, it's like child panties. You know, so I'm in, I'm in like Walmart, like looking, picking panties out of packages. I'm sure people are just like, what is she doing? Can I do this? Will this work? Um, and then I really liked uh, that other color. So then I made this low-fire body of work where I decided I like color, I want to add color, let me try and do it in ceramics. And I had this idea of um, paint by numbers, and adding paint by numbers over the forms. But really, that just ends up looking like camouflage. Because that's kind of what camouflage is. It's like paint by numbers over a three-dimensional form. So I made a whole body of work with this. Uh, and then like went back to porcelain. I think before, I've always come back to porcelain. I've tried other materials, I've worked other things, but somehow that's tied up in that. Um, so here's angry, you know, I would just think of these different ways. I would do my research by looking online and finding different um, figurines. I wanted to find these kind of really cute, really sweet representations of animals and then have them have a more animalistic attitude in some way. Uh, this is a lamb. If you can see inside, he has red inside of his mouth and there's a little bit of a drip. So at some point, and it was around the time of Abu Ghraib and 9-11 that ends Terry Schiavo. So this was just, it felt like there was just so much violence. And there was so much kind of horror that I, maybe this was when I got cable, I don't know. <laughs> like it, probably, one year. it probably always existed, but it was just like, it felt like the purpose of this nonstop cover, I'm sorry, I'm gonna change this because it's so hard to look at. The purpose of this nonstop coverage of this violence felt like it was um, making us immune to it. It was making us, think of violence as something that we could look, as like an entertainment in a way. And it just really, I don't know, it really bothered me. And so at the same time, and maybe this is backwards, maybe this is forward, like I don't always know. We talked before about a lot of times your career as an artist is like forgetting all the stuff you learned in grad school. And I was really trying to just make work that I wanted to make and not but the animals that I was making started to get skin diseases. Like you can kind of see it, it might be hard up here, but they have like rashes and they're kind of open and they're both you know, kind of gnawing at themselves. It felt like violent things started to happen to the animals I was making. It wasn't like a plan, but looking back, I feel like it was kind of around the same time. So the um, chipmunk kind of blowing up 
in that, uh, the cock, the rooster, getting his head split open and then oozing. And in a way, like, they became prettier, but then they became more disturbing. And I like this direction. I like the different colors I could add to them, the way I could highlight them. Um, here's a, then I made a bigger chipmunk blowing up. And this might have been one of the first times I used the spray foam. Like, I really love that great stuff, that spray foam. And so when I did this one, it was like, that explosion is not big enough. Like, I want a big explosion. <laughs> And I made that, and that's tool dip. That's all like sprayed tool dip. And then some smaller pieces, like I will do shows where they ask for something small, the deer getting shot through and the blood. So, you know, at some point it stopped being the animals, you know, acting out in their animal nature, but it started being things happening to the animals. I guess the guy smoking a cigar on top is still a little bit like the animal acting out. There's the squirrel tied up. <coughs> The squirrel getting his tail lights up, so kind of getting electrocuted. And uh, a very brief, like, what do you do with the cord? How do you hide that? And you're like, oh, make it part of the piece. That's what you do. So this is gigantic nest of cords. Um, the deer and the bomb. Um, you know, solutions happen. I make things on these fragile little legs. And I often had things not work, and so I think this is the one where the legs completely collapse. So I ended up cutting those legs off and then tool dipping them. And then I liked that idea, because it actually looked a little bit like they were wearing stockings. And that was interesting. So that then became a part. Um, pieces are now a combination of put together and assembled. There's a rod that comes out of his back, so that rocket, the bomb is separate. You know, so when I ship it, I don't have to worry about it shipping. rooster with a knot in his head. Um, so during all of this, one of the things that gets me really excited is that I'd love to go off on these tangents, and I'd love to learn a new technique. So one of them was low-relief carving. So that was just, I'd never really done it, and then thinking of a way of, like, how do you create an image? So here's playing around a little bit with it. That dime is probably about this big, and then the tile is a little bit bigger. I never really... I did some of it, I made some pieces based on it, I don't know how far it went, but that led me to this technique called paste or paste, which is paste on paste, which is where you build up layers of clay, liquid clay, to create an image. Um, these are some famous people that did paste or paste back in the 1880s. And so you put on a dark background, you build up these layers of white slip on top, and then you put a clear glaze on there, where it's thinner, it burns through to the black. Where it's thicker, it's more opaque. You don't know what's going to work until you fire it. And this seemed like the kind of ridiculous, um, here's some of my tests. Here's an early version of it, not quite working. Um, I did finally get some pieces that I liked with that. And I've made a couple of things, but I actually really liked it as a surface. Like I used it here on this. Um, newborn kitten, so I would have painted a red background over the whole thing and then did the paints or paint on top to get that really like oozy kind of where you can see right through the skin in there. Um, this is my studio in Philadelphia. So I work much like I was working today. I have all of my images out on something. I make a model. Here I'm making some kind of bird. Um, here's the dog that I made, and those are all the bowls that the dog would have come out. So this is the one I was making. <coughs> the 
today, but we did not get it completely together, so it's going to be two dog halves. Um, and then I have to fire it uh, very carefully. So porcelain has a tendency to move and flop around, so here it is with all of the supports going on a kiln shelf. This is more for the ceramics people. Like, how do you fire those things? And then you can see he's cut off at the knees, so actually the legs will get glued on later. And then this would be the piece that was made with that. So uh, coming in, doing a lot more fine detailed carving. So continuing in this kind of same vein of actions happening to animals and violence, and then also thinking about 3D printing and modeling, and what does it mean to be a modeler anymore when things can just get printed? And then having this idea of like motion is something that you can't capture. So how do you show motion? Like how do you make something active or appear active? Um, so I think about, I was thinking about that when I was making those. And then also really starting to think about presentation. I wanted to, um, I don't know where that piece is, it's not here. I wanted to go back to like, instead of the animals existing by themselves and having kind of a prop. I guess now the pedestal's the prop. It's funny how things happen and you're like, oh yeah, I am doing that. I wanted to think about how do we show this? How do we display this? And I, this style of furniture, this kind of industrial revolution, mass-produced furniture that's supposed to look like it's fancy, to me kind of fit with the same ideas that I was making with the porcelain, where porcelain used to be this really elegant material, but I was making it kind of ridiculous by doing kitschy things with it. So I wanted to combine these two and then have them, like this movement, this dripping, this falling apart, this decaying as part of that. So here's a squirrel with a tumor in the pink. Um, goat drip. So in these cases, I would find the furniture, I would make the animal, I would think about the resin. Some of it's ceramic, some of it's furniture, some of it's spray foam, and then painting them to make them kind of all appear in the same level. And it was just wanting to give the pieces, like get them off the box pedestal, but make my own pedestal. So I still do think of the furniture as kind of a pedestal, but when I need to make it all part of the piece. Um, a foray into figurative, you know, where Abraham Lincoln, it's kind of the same idea, like showing him as a sculpture, as a traditional bust, but also showing him as very human. Um, it seemed much more serious than I want. And then to really, to be honest, in this vignette, I was in the animal show, and I had this piece and I wanted to show it, but I didn't have, so I just put an animal with them. Because <laughs> people are always like, why is the rat with Abraham Lincoln? And you're like, because I wasn't in an animal show. It kind of had to be. <laughs> I could have put it on his head. Maybe I was thinking back to that Meissen, you know, with the mouse on there from long ago. Uh, so somewhere in all of that time frame, I made this piece. And this piece is, the scroll is actually pretty small, but a lot of this is all porcelain and put together. And I modeled this. And I did a little bit of a china painting. And there's something where I really, I like this. and I thinking about this piece. This piece was probably about, I don't know, six, seven years old, but it sits in the back of your head. I had made it specifically for a figurine show, and then now I am thinking about um, 
ways of using that. Like I like the china paint. I like the china paint and the tie-in to the traditional ceramics. I don't know a lot about it, so I'm starting to play with it some, but here's a couple of uh, foo dogs that I put together, the lion dogs, that I wanted to make a piece about. Um, and then playing, so these are some early representations of that. Here's the um, lion dogs put together in the piece. I, the last kind of big show I had was about, I don't know, seven months ago at the Art Alliance in Philadelphia. It's a beautiful old mansion. And so I made a series of pieces to go with that in this space. Um, and so these are, the last images I'll show are all images from there. I don't really have better photos. So what I hope to do is that I want to combine that squirrel piece <clears throat> where the whole pedestal is made out of ceramics. And I think they're probably going to have to get a little smaller again. And then something with china painting and feel like where I'm going to move from that direction. Um, I don't know what that is yet. But every time I keep making animals, I keep, I keep making them big. You know, I keep wanting to make them. Like I imagine I'm going to make it this big and then I end up making it this big. So maybe I won't go there. So here are some pieces. Uh, the lamb piece here, like I, you know, this went into where I actually cut the furniture apart and then put the piece in there, so it's completely trapped by the furniture. And I do like that idea, but in some ways it almost feels too serious for my work, so then I have to go back, and then the deer on the walls also feels a little too, so then I go back to something a little bit more silly. Um, are smaller or big. So here's an earlier bear piece, and I had mentioned, as a side to making these animals, I had started doing these kind of playing in clay and making these different structures, and now I'm trying to figure out how to combine those. So behind the bear are these flats, uh, two-dimensional kind of mountains, and then the skirt thing that comes down are all different types of built ceramics that I've made with different ways of playing with the material. So somehow combining this, and I'm not sure what it is. I like that my work is so much about refining and being completely in control that I want to somehow have that in contrast with work that's kind of out of control. And that's hard to do if you're a control freak like I am. So I'm trying to figure out a way, like how do I force myself to make stuff that feels out of control to go with it? and create these kind of like landscapes, domestic landscapes. Yeah, I'm not sure what they are. Um, here's a combination of that show installed. And that might be the last image I have of the word. No, yeah, that's it, so. Can you talk a little bit about like the use of color in that second to last image? Like this one? Yeah, are there specific references that you're, I mean, you use the word silly. Yeah. So can you talk about, like, how you responded in that way? Or? Mm -hmm. um, the bear, which you can't see, has a wound on his back. On his back? Yeah, so then that red, which is kind of amped up like cartoony blood, mm -hmm. is supposed to be like the pool and then dripping down. Um, but I also don't want it to be so obvious that that's what it is. And the color is often just chosen as something that contrasts highly with the porcelain, you know, like the orange or the pink or the purple. 
in that particular show, I wanted different varieties of color around, so I thought about that as a whole, as mm -hmm. a framing together. To me, they make them feel, there's like a really, they're resins, and they're very plasticky, and in real life, they have a very different um, surface and effect when you look at them. So there's kind of the, the depth of celadon grade ceramics, and then the painted table, which is very much the colors on the surface, and then this plastic color on there. Uh, you know, the later you get in your work, and then the idea of like not thinking about your work is that sometimes I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't know why I make these decisions or why I choose. I think in school you have to really think about it, and you have to kind of develop these very specific ideas in directions, but I think once you get out of school, it's nice to be able to kind of let those ideas just kind of float around in your head, but maybe not be so specific. If that probably does not answer your question at all. Yeah, it does. I mean, the, okay. just your approach to it, like yeah. is it just a color punch? A lot of time it's a color punch. Specific, like, yeah. yeah. And I like really liked the kind of half-dipped animals. I liked that feeling of them you know, and then it kind of floating off. So I guess I have these ideas that they're all kind of decaying. They're all falling apart. They're all, you know, maybe it's just being middle-aged. You know, like, I'm dying. My body's falling apart. But now my animals are like, their bodies are falling apart and they're decaying. I, it could be that simple, but I don't really know. You know, I felt like when horrible things started happening to the animals, there's like a part in your life when you're young, there's a time in your life where you feel like you're making all the decisions about what you're doing and what's happening. And then it feels like there's this section in the middle where you feel like you're being bounced around. That other people's decisions are deciding your life for you. And it feels a little bit out of control. And I think that's when that was happening. Like when things started happening to the animals, when they weren't being the aggressive actors, but they were being the, you know, I feel like it was that. You know, I felt like things were happening that I had no say in, and then it started to show. And, you know, now these things are kind of, they're melting, they're disappearing, they're merging. And then I think it really does have to do with like how you feel about where you are and what you're doing. Um, or I could be completely wrong, and it could be something else. <laughs> so, <clears throat> any questions besides? All right, um, thank you very much for coming. Um, <laughs> this is good, I'm gonna close this up. <laughs> I'm tired.